Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, guys. Welcome, welcome. I wanted to give you guys an update on my mom. She is doing as well as can be expected. They are anticipating her leaving the rehab facility, which I'm not thrilled about. She can get up and walk, but she walks with a walker and like she has three broken ribs. So it really is very challenging for her to get up to the walker. But she's like, oh, I can walk really well when I have my walker. And I'm like, yeah, but anyway, it's very challenging because you are anticipating the next crisis, which is bound to happen, right? <laughs> but you also want to be super positive. So I'm going to leave it at super positive. I uh, got my Christmas tree up and I'm very excited. I am recording this visually, but it may not be released right away, but it is in the background. I made it my background today. <laughs> we finally found the right solution, which is a four and a half foot tree that we put on our coffee table in a corner. And that is good. Last year, I, we had to put it out on our porch. We put it out on our deck so we could see it from the living room window because we had Maverick for the first time. And he was like, a lot. <laughs> and so <laughs> we ended up with a four and a half foot tree and it's awesome. Um, and then the next exciting thing is that Pascal is going for his driving test next week. And this is groundbreaking. I am so excited. We have been having a really hard season and not because of like attitude or anything like that, just physical getting to places because he has a vibrant social life as well as a great work life. And he homeschools, so he takes opportunities when they come. He goes hunting when he can. And he has needed me more physically now than in the last six months than he needed me when he was three. It's crazy. And then, of course, I want to always be there emotionally even more than when he was three. Because if he's in the mood to tell me something or to process something, I'm like, yep, dropping everything, going to be right there. Whereas I understand we can't always do that with our three-year-olds, right? But it has been a very challenging season for me. It's just... I've been saying it's like no fun for Jamie. I feel like the Spartan race was the funnest thing I did. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way. And I'm, I'm, I'm complaining a little bit, but I also have a point to my story. It's been just a very all hands on deck, parent, 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 either physically, emotionally, or whatever. And it's just been very challenging for work, even like recording this podcast in my potty training podcast. I thought I had it all figured out. I, I took a couple of days. I put Mav in daycare and I was like, these are just for recording. I'm not doing any shopping. I'm not leaving the house. These are for recording for work, like record, you know, reels and get work done and meet with clients and these kinds of things. And then the rest of the days I could do the writing or, you know, communicating with clients on a walkie talkie. I'm not doing the zoom calls, not doing other interviews for other people's podcasts or magazines or radio. So I really thought I had it all figured out. And then. I don't know. It all fell apart. And I was like, oh, I just haven't been able to get my head above water. And I know you guys know what I'm talking about because you have toddlers, <laughs> but I was past that stage. So I didn't know this stage would come back. So I think that's kind of the shocking thing. I think that was the most shocking thing is that you have these like years where you coast and then all of a sudden it comes back. And maybe this would be different with two parents. I don't know. Or if he went to school maybe, but, but anyway, it's a very hard season. And I've been rolling with it, but it's, it's coming to a head and I'm very happy about this license situation. <laughs> but I bring this up because I've really had to pivot. I've really had to change my attitude about how parenting is going down because I want him to have all these opportunities. I want him to 
flourish with his friends. I want to be the parent who's available. And so again, I'm not complaining because I I have had to pivot and I willingly pivoted. Yeah. And I wanted today to talk about those times that we willingly pivot, or maybe sometimes not willingly, but we still do pivot our parenting, our core values, our ideas, our way of being in the world with our kids as, as, or without our kids as people, we pivot in a different direction than we ever thought possible because of the kid in front of us or because of life, because of circumstances. And what I mean by the kid in front of us, that's kind of, and my friend Jesse, who touts this phrase all over the internet is she, she loves this phrase, which is like, parent the kid you have, parent the kid in front of you. Because so often we have an ideal of what parenting will look like, or we know what what we expect from our kids, or we know how it's going to be, or how we want to be in our lifestyle, or whatever. And so we have this ideal, and then the kid in front of us is different. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's just different. I never would have thought I had a kid as straight-laced as Pascal, as like a rule follower, as a structure. Like I thought I'd have this like whack job like me, like let's fling a bunch of spaghetti at the wall of life and see what sticks. <laughs> but that's not who I had, right? And so I think in these situations, we, again, willingly, unwillingly, consciously, unconsciously, we pivot. And this all came about because I was having a conversation with a friend and the family was telling me that they had just moved their daughter to a private school. She is 11 years old. She's in a public middle school. And they're in a good, they're in like a good city, right? But there's like a tremendous amount of violence and fighting in this school, which by the way, I'm hearing quite a lot of, I I don't know what's quite happening in our public schools, but a lot of them are, there's a lot of violence, a lot of police are being called to the school fighting, this kind of thing. And I know even when I took Pascal out of first grade and he was in a good school, the police were there every day. So it's, I don't know, something's getting a little crazy, (laughs) but anyway, they, you know, this little girl couldn't even learn. She was so stressed. I mean, of course, nervous about her own safety, but also stressed like that chaos and and not knowing about your safety. She was far too stressed out to even learn. So they made the hard decision, well, the easy decision to pull her and put her in the private school. But the private school was the hard decision because both parents come from public school families. Their parents were public school teachers. They're public school teachers. They like, they believe in the public school system. Their children were going to go to public school. And now they find themselves at odds with a core philosophy, a core anchor of their family that this child now is going to go to a private school, which, you know, if that's a core value, you can see how that shakes you up, right? And you might be like, oh, poor things, but but private school denotes a different thing, right? It denotes a different way of learning and a different lifestyle almost. And if you believe in the public school system, it's like public libraries, like it's a thing, you're passionate about it. I mean, of course they moved her out and it wasn't like, it was like, it wasn't like a hard decision, but it was, again, it shook them a little, it shook them to their core. And It just made me think about those times that we've had to go against something in our core values because of something like this, right? I mean, obviously there was a danger component here as well as high stress. So like, even though it was a no brainer, again, it it shook the parents' value system. I think that most of us are used to pivoting right from the start. I think this is birth plans, to be honest. So if you're a mama, Almost none of us have the birth we planned, right? And you, I, I gave Pascal's birth story last year on my birthday. None of us have the birth we necessarily planned, but we pivot, right? Like if things are going wrong, you go have a C-section. It's not like it's not like we stop the pivoting. We pivot, we do. But you know, again, in the acknowledging, one of the things I've always hated about when your birth goes awry or when it doesn't go according to plan is like the whole like, well, at least the baby's healthy. Yeah, 
at least, of course, I'm really happy my baby's healthy, but also could we just acknowledge that, you know, <laughs> that it sucks that I didn't have the birth I wanted. You know, it's like if it rains on your wedding day, you don't say, well, at least you got married, right? You acknowledge that, oh man, it sucks on your wedding day, which is also another pivot. <laughs> and I think also feeding. I think feeding goes very awry for a lot of moms. Maybe you wanted to breastfeed and your child can't, you can't, there's not enough milk. Uh, there are myriad of things that go wrong with breastfeeding. I think that is one of those areas too, where we have to pivot against a thing that we had a core value about, a, a thought. We had a real definitive vision and it sort of, it went awry and, and we did, we, we pivoted, but again, not acknowledging that for some mamas, that is crushing. If you had a vision and a plan and, you know, I think there's several things with breastfeeding that there's a vision, there's a feeling of the vision of the child at your breast. But I think also, you know, for health reasons, a lot of people prefer breastfeeding. So I think early on, especially in motherhood, in parenthood in general, but especially in motherhood, I think we're, we're experts at pivoting. Um, many instances, the parents just don't have the child that they dreamed. And again, could it could be a diagnosis, it could be colic, it could be just not, not what you expected out of infanthood, right? Uh, or toddlerhood and you end up with a kid. I, you know, I work with a lot of families who are like this. They're like, I just didn't envision so much fighting, you know, or they have a kid who's got like a sensory issue and I didn't anticipate it being this hard. And so again, though, we pivot, right? We find the resources and we're like, okay. And a lot of times in my work with families, it is like grieving. It's grieving that parenthood that you thought you were going to have that now you don't have. And now you have maybe a more difficult child than your neighbor's kids. And you're like, why is my kid so hard? You know? And then I, I, a lot of the work I do with parents is coming to that, that grief and that grips that I don't know why it's hard. I don't know why some of the things in my life are hard. I just know that they're hard. And once we can look and acknowledge that they're hard, it makes the pivoting a lot easier so we can turn and look at the kid we have and say, Oh, okay. Don't know why it's hard, but this is my kid. And this is, you know, I have to do this. I need extra resources or whatever, whatever that might look like for your family. These are examples of struggle. And there are a couple of more that I have of struggle that we see a child struggling and we pivot because there was a struggle, right? So for example, even Pascal, I had planned on homeschooling, but honestly, I had planned on homeschooling after fifth grade. I was like, could we get through fractions? And then I'll take it from there. <laughs> you know, I thought he'd be fine till fifth grade. That was my plan to homeschool later in life. And then the kid I had just fell apart and it just, everything converged so that I ended up having to homeschool him in the middle of first grade. And it was an extreme pivot. If you haven't heard my homeschool stories, I literally came home and he was crying these very silent tears. And I was in no way, shape or form ready to homeschool. I, like I said, I didn't have enough colored pencils and maps. I just, it wasn't on my radar. I thought we were going to finish. We had already talked about it, but I thought we were going to finish out first grade. And he was distraught and was like, please don't make me go back. And and it was very, very sudden. And But it was a pivot. I was like, all right, I don't know what's going on, but you stay home. I'll go back. I'll go up to the school. We'll figure it out. And you don't have to go back. We also have a friend whose parents were very into the Waldorf education. And the Waldorf education can be very lovely. It's, it's a whole philosophy and it's a whole lifestyle. So you got to kind of go in hook, line and sinker. But her kid, most kids love it, especially the early childhood stuff. It's very magical. So most young kids love it. And her son hated it. And they ended up having to put him in a public school and they were, they were like devastated. They were like, we're providing this like pricey, magical, 
education for our child and it's not the right fit. And so a lot of times you find that in schools, you have to change schools because again, the kid in front of you, or it could be life circumstances like my friend, you know, that the violence that you have to get your kid out. But again, I I think it's just so interesting when we start thinking. And so we did, we started jamming, my friend and I started jamming on some of these ways that we pivoted. And then it struck me as like, oh, wait, it doesn't always have to be when the kid is struggling. It can be because the kid is thriving and stuff. And I always think like, I'm a master at pivoting just because I think I'm a really good chameleon. Like I think I'm just like, okay. I also think I'm kind of, I know I'm not dumb, but I'm kind of like goofy. Like I'm like, right, I'll, I'll try anything. Like, I don't care. Like I don't have this like grand plan. So I'm like, okay, that's how I get into Spartan races. I was like, all right, 17 miles up a mountain. Yeah, that's nine hours. That sounds fun. Let's do that. <laughs> you know, I've pivoted a lot with Pascal. I think having to, because I'm a single mom and he's, you know, my only kid. So it's like, what am I going to do? Not pivot? <laughs> like, and I can't have my spouse do it. right? But what comes to mind is, is Pascal in baseball. So as a theater junkie and it worked in the circus. And when I got pregnant, I was like, I was, I was still doing a little bit of circus, mostly social work, but I was doing a little circus, like one-off gigs. And I was like, oh, oh, I'll have a little theater kid, you know, he'll, he'll audition and be on Broadway. And then I was like, no, nah, I don't like, I don't want him to be a theater brat. And we just lived a regular, regular life, you know? And then he doesn't go into theater, of course. And this is all cool, cool, right? But what I didn't know is that I'd end up with the polar opposite of my very existence, which is called baseball. I know you guys didn't know me back in the day, but baseball would be my vision of hell, like actual hell. There was no part of it that I liked. I guess my father took us to a Red Sox game when I was like seven and I played with my zipper the whole time. And he was like, I'm never bringing you to a baseball game again. And I was like, good. Hated, hated, hated it. Didn't know a thing about it. Just hated it. Well, of course, what do I have? I get a kid who is like a baseball prodigy, right? And he can't wait to play baseball, playing baseball at two years old. Can't wait to start t-ball. We had to take him out of t-ball because he was too competitive. Like he was egging on, like trying to coach the other kids obnoxious. Then he started literally, he's good. He's always been a really, really good baseball player. But what are you going to do when your kid plays baseball? You're going to coach if you're Jamie, right? So I start coaching. I start with, you know, T-ball and then I end up coaching. I end up coaching the major leagues. Like what the hell? Because I'm me, right? (laughs) I learned all the rules, but I definitely pivoted because I was like, Hey, I don't want to just sit on the stands while my kid's playing. I want to take part. I want to know his teammates. I want to be part of the, part of the action. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Some of that is me. Like I'm bossy and I take charge of things. <laughs> but I thought it was, um, I thought it was the biggest pivot I've ever done. And to this day, when I run into people who used to know me and they haven't kept up with me in my life, when I run through our quick history, they're like, you, you coached baseball. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know it's weird. And then there's, you know, there's our little life here in the woods and our tiny ha- cabin in the woods and our hunting. And you guys, I don't know if you understand this, but I have lived in major cities my entire life. I get like anxiety if there's not a 24 hour something within a mile radius. Like there's got to be a gas station, something I can get, whatever I need. There's a 24 hour thing. I used to always have my nails done, always have my hair done, my eyelashes done. You know, I was fancy and hunting. I've always appreciated meat, but there is no way you guys, if you hunt home me three years ago that I would be living in the middle of the woods bow hunting, bow and arrow hunting, deer, and processing my own meat, I would have been like, you are so high on crack, I don't know what to do with you. And yet here I am doing that very thing. And it all started because my son started to hunt. And we, well, it started with me running in the woods too, but I could see him thriving in hunting. Like he loved it. And he's 
good at it. And he now works like with the DEM. He is the liaison. He has aged out of a lot of the youth programs. And so they got, he's the first kid ever that they're using in their programming as a kid to adult liaison. And so he goes to these events and helps and mentors kids. And it's like a whole lifestyle. It's really crazy. And again, if you had told me that this would have been part of my life three years ago, I would have been like, there is absolutely no way. But Again, I think I can pivot faster than most. And I think also, again, just my circumstance, because I'm a single mom with a single child, it's much easier for me to do a full pivot. <laughs> I can pivot faster than Ross. And um, if you don't get the friends reference, then I'm really sorry. You and I can't be friends because you have to get all the friends references. <laughs> but for all the times I pivot, I know that there are parents who don't. And this is a problem. This whole conversation has really brought up a lot for me because I work with a lot of families who are really stuck, 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 stuck. And there's a couple of concepts here. And one is they get stuck in the child has to do something, like has to do something because they have to follow through. And if you go back to us, Stephanie Sotelo and I did a podcast on knowing your why. And this comes up a lot, particularly in sports and anything that has to do with grit and working through something. And what happens is like, say that let's take that my friend's daughter, she's in middle school and you know, there's violence and there's fighting and she hadn't ever been physically harmed, even though that probably was always possible. Her parents could have said, you know, tough it out. This is how the world works. Tough it out. There are a lot of situations in which a kid is being bullied. And we know this has reached epic proportions where the child's being, you know, relentlessly bullied and, um, the parents are like, you know, stick it out. You got to stick it out. I, one of the most infuriating questions I get about homeschooling is people say, well, or not question, but like comment is, oh, I wouldn't homeschool. My kid's got to learn how to deal with bullies. And I was like, we're basing your child's education on the ability to deal with bullies. <laughs> First of all, that's kind of crazy. Second of all, I think this is really bizarre because in real life, we don't deal with bullies. Like if you think about it, if you meet a bully, if somebody's being a jerk or a bully to you, you're a grown up. You figure it out. You go to HR, you get another job or you leave the market or you drive away. You, We don't stick around and deal with bullies. Bullies deal with us. That's the nature of the relationship. So the idea that you would get more grit by learning to deal with bullies, it's not a fucking Hallmark movie where your kid stands up to the bully and the bully backs down. Even in the Hallmark movies, that doesn't happen, right? Didn't the Christmas story tell us anything? It is these situations where sometimes parents will keep their kids stuck. And this happens again with what we've discussed this with like four and five-year-olds in sports, organized sports, and the kid's having a miserable time and the parents are like, nope, they got to stick it out. They got to stick it out. And I'd say this is largely dads, but very often I find it with moms. We have to examine the why. And so there's no pivoting because there's this idea that there's some value in sticking it out. So I wanted to do a small tangent on the idea of sticking it out for grip because I think it's it's valuable, right? There is working through something. And I, I've given this example a few times on the podcast. So Pascal, his instrument was drums. And I was very firm, a core value of mine is musical instruments. He had to learn an instrument. He picked drums, which was awesome because we lived in by Providence College, by drunk college students who would party all night. They would wake him up as a baby. It was awful. They would wake him up at their partying. And so I did the very passive aggressive thing, which was allow Pascal to not only drum, but I put the drum set right by the you know open window next door to where I knew their bedroom was, the party animals. And so... It was a little passive aggressive, but uh, super fun nonetheless. So he started playing drums and he got quite good. And I'd say about what, like two years in. So they, the way the teacher worked, like he kept things kind of fun and moving for a couple of years. And then they got down to brass tacks, which was drills. 
they had to do these drills. And I noticed he wasn't practicing as much. And I was like, Hey, what's up? And he was like, I hate these drills. I want to quit drums. This is so boring. And I was like, okay, you know, you can quit drums if you want, but you're going to have to take another instrument. Like that's not negotiable in our house. And drills are going to happen in any instrument. It's not just drums. Like every instrument has drills. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. So, you know, go ahead, pick up and pick up whatever you want. You can keep cycling through them, but you're going to get to drills. And he was like, all right, well, I'll stick with, I'll stick with drums. And he worked through it. And that was something. So he worked through something hard. He worked through something he didn't want to do, but it was within a framework of something he liked. And if he really didn't like drums, I would have given him the out, but he he would have had to do the same hard work in a different instrument. And I think that's just a really good example. Not that I'm like so great or anything, but I was totally on the fly. But I, in hindsight, of course, it was a really good example, I think, of how working through something, getting grit, gaining proficiency, working through the really hard part, that's hard enough. It doesn't have to be with something you absolutely hate. And I know the school system is set up to do that. And, you know, you may not have a choice in that, but that, that is one of the reasons I, I homeschool is that we can always find another way. And of course, he's got to learn math. You know what I mean? But we can find a different system of doing it. We can find a different thing. He's got to work through some challenging things, but there's working through it within a framework, right? Like, and if you think about yourself, when you have something that you really love, whatever that is, a hobby or part of your job, you're like, I'm going to figure this out. It's hard work, but it's for the end goal of something you love. And so that's where I think we can utilize this grit and working through something. And sports, this, I look at sports as like the musical instrument, go play another sport. There's something else that the kid can work through something. And, you know, I was working with a client, her little one, was in soccer and hate, just hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. it, was miserable, made everybody else miserable. And she was like, I don't know what to do. She loved soccer. She loved it from a young age. And I was like, well, maybe you're kind of living a little, a little through your kid, you know, or like, what's your why? Why do you have him in soccer? Is it, she was like, I just want him to have what I had. And I said, yeah, but if he doesn't love it, then he won't have what you had. It'll just be misery, you know? And so she was like, yeah, and so we talked a little bit more and then he, I said, you know, what, what is the why for you? And she said, you know, bottom line, and I think a lot of people for sports is the team, right? The team playing, the team sports thing. And I agree with that. And I said, Hey, like he's such a little funny. He loves the all eyes on him. He loves having the attention. I said, maybe some theater would be good for him. Some like kid children's theater because that's still team playing and there's still going to be relationship things and there's still going to be hard rehearsals and there's still going to be days you don't want to go, but at least it's something you want to do. And she was like, oh yeah. All right. Well, you know, we'll try that. So again, I think it's a, a good example. And another thing that Pascal had gone through was he was in gymnastics when he was very young and he was skilled and there was a need for boys in gymnastics. And so somewhere around the, he was in kindergarten, they asked him to be on the team. And this was accelerated practice. Like it went from like once a week to three times a week for two and a half hours. It was accelerated. I didn't love it, but they were like, Hey, you know, he's got a lot of talent or whatever. And I was like, all right, we'll try it. And he was like falling asleep in the car. I hated it. It was definitely overscheduled for my taste, even though it was like the only thing we did. And every day before gymnastics, he'd be like, mom, I, do we have to go? You know, just whining, not a big fight, not kicking up a lot of dirt, just your average whining. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to go. You got to go. And I called a couple of moms that have kids older than me. And I was like, is this something you work through? Like, I'm not sure. Is this something I let him quit? 
it felt like one of those parenting moments. Like, do I make him stick through? He's not miserable. And every time he got out, he'd be happy. But I was like, I don't know. There just doesn't seem to be any joy or passion or anything. And I was like, is this this moment that you quit? And nobody had any really good advice for me. So I kind of stuck it out for a little while. And then he joined baseball. And it was the year of Little League. I remember one day, he's looking out the window. And it's pouring rain, pouring rain. You, you can't even see two feet in front of you. And he's like, I do not understand why practice was canceled. We could easily be out in this rain. And I was like, oh, this is passion and purpose. Okay. So I let him quit gymnastics and then he took baseball. And again, he worked through really hard things. Yeah. He worked through really hard things, but it was in the context of something he loved. And if you're making your kid, if you have the thought, and again, I tend to find this in, in males more than females, but it does happen. If you are thinking, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. They have to do things they don't like. They have to work through hard things in context of things they don't like. I really want you to re-examine that because that is how people end up in really shitty jobs, really miserable with their lives, in unhappy marriages, and wake up when they're 50 and regret everything. I'm not exaggerating because when we force unhappiness and make unhappiness a way of life, then that's what they learn. And so I really want you to examine that notion. I think it's a really important one. And again, it may sound dramatic, but that is cultivated unhappiness. And I don't think we need to do that to our children. So that's one aspect of when we don't pivot, right? Like if we don't pivot, we refuse to pivot. We don't see the pivot because we're like, nope, we're gripping onto that idea of like grit or endurance or whatever it is that we got going on, right? But the other thing, the other reason we don't pivot necessarily is because of identity. And this is a weird thing too, you guys. So there's something called enmeshment in which we're too enmeshed with our children. Like we're almost like literally woven together. And oftentimes I work with clients when they say, oh, we took a nap and we had a poop. And I'm like, no, we didn't. They did. And you're the parent. That's a form of enmeshment is saying we all the time. It's not you and your child as one being. Yeah. It's two beings. <laughs> There's also an, an enmeshment where we are too over identified with our children. This is a problem today. There is something that's happened. I think I've touched upon it before. We're over identifying with our parenting and thus making our kids our identity. And part of it, I think is like, I think we have to be super moms now and super parents. So it's like us, 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 like, oh, we have to do such a good job. I literally heard the other day on a podcast, not on a podcast, on an Instagram thing. It was the idea that there's a good mom. And it was like, what makes you think you're not a good mom? And I was like, it, it was less interested in the question as I was in the categorizing of motherhood as, as good. And I was like, oh, that's a fucking problem that we like, think we're good moms and bad moms. And I know we all joke, like we might say, well, I'm such a bad mom, you know? But I think it's so funny that there's now this idea of a good mom. Like we're all just moms, especially if you're listening to this podcast. Yes, I worked in social services in San Francisco. There are some bad parents out there for sure. Although I would argue that everything is trauma responses, but we are just parents. Yeah. Like we're just parents, whatever you're feeding your kid, whatever you're doing for extracurricular activities, however you're spending your time, you are still parenting your kid. They are clothed, they are fed, and they are going you know, to things. Yes, they are having social activities. So I want you to step out of this like good mom, because what that does is it over identifies us with our role, first of all, right? I am a mom, whether I'm good or bad, I'm still a mom. And then it makes us creepy because now we've made our children an extension of us. And this idea is really, really funny. I actually have worked with a couple of clients when I was like, mm, I think you're identifying a little too much with your child. And I remember this one mom, she said, well, 
I don't know what that means. And I said, well, it's like they're an extension of yourself. So like what they do reflects on you. And she was hilarious in her candor. She was, they're absolutely a reflection of me. Everything they do is a reflection of me. If they are good, I am good. If they are bad, I am bad. If they do well, I do well. My mind was blown. As you could tell, I'm speechless. I was like, you do understand that that's very unhealthy, right? And she was like, I don't care. (laughs) Okay. But in the context of our work, you have to care. (laughs) So when we do that, of course, we don't pivot because we have a preconceived notion that children are going to do what we tell them to do. Because I did this, I took tap, and my daughter is going to tap because either I won the blah, 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 or I didn't win the blah, 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 and she's going to. So we set up these like wonky expectations. So you just kind of want to check in. And, you know, even my client, very sweet mom with uh, soccer, you know, but I felt like, all right, maybe we're edging into over-identifying, you know, and it wasn't the case, but I just wanted to give you that example. You want to just check yourself. Like when your child seems like they're struggling or they're really thriving and you can't pivot in either direction, you really want to check in with why. Why is that happening? Yeah. Because our kids really need us. They really need us to be there to build trust, right? When we make them work through the right things, that helps them build fortitude and trust in themselves. When we learn to pivot, we help them. We help them build trust in us, that we see them, we see their needs, we see who they are, and that we are willing to do the work with them, for them, however that looks, to pivot and change the situation. When we over-identify, though, then we start talking in terms of ownership. We don't own our kids. We do not own our children. We are their guides. We are, like, what do I say? We're the bumpers in duck pin bowling. You know those bumpers go up so the ball can't go in the gutter? That's us. Other than that, there's a whole lane of nonsense going on that you have no control over. You can try, but it's going to go badly for you. And it's going to go badly for your child and not just in the moment. Again, I'm dead serious when I say if we build our, if we cultivate an attitude of unhappiness, that's what our kids are going to learn. So we don't always want to be like, tough it out, tough it out. Sometimes we have to see when it's the moment not to tough it out, when it's the moment to pivot. And again, not just the struggle, but when they're thriving as well, when do we lean into, wow, this is the thing that's making you light up. Uh, Let's do it. All right. With that, I am going to say good night. It's nighttime. I'm recording at night. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to say rock on because that's what I usually say. I was just thinking though, I just recorded an interview with my friend, Sarah, and we were talking about parenting and a new paradigm of parenting. And she said the best thing we were talking about our kids. And she said, oh, I just, I love how I've parented. I love my parenting. And I was like, oh my God, if everybody listening to my podcast could just sit in the mirror and say that, I would be thrilled. Like, I love my parenting. I love how I'm parenting. I love how I'm doing it. Yes, we do have shitty days, but yes, we can do it as well. Right. And I was like, I love my parenting too. And it was so refreshing and nice to kind of pat ourselves on the back instead of denigrating ourselves or bitching and moaning. And it was just really a breath of fresh air. So I encourage you to go to your nearest mirror and take a deep breath and say, I love my parenting. It's not always going to be fun, but you can still love it. All right, you guys, as always, rock on. Have a great day. Have a great night. I totally appreciate you guys and we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye everyone. Just a reminder, if you need additional resources, I have Oh Crap Potty Training. I have 
Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler. Those books are available everywhere you want to find a book. <laughs> you can also go to my website, jamiekowacki.com, where you can book private sessions with me, buy any of my courses. Those are really geared towards potty training help. And also I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook anymore and I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, jamie.glowacki, and I do a lot of lives and uh, usually posting a lot of good information. So those are extra resources for you. And as always, rock on. Have an awesome day. 